The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. He, Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for all of the birthday wishes yesterday. If you're wondering how old I am, I found it on the El Arroyo Marquee this week. I am now used the flashlight on my phone at a restaurant years old. I thought that was for me this week for the El Arroyo sign, but thank you all for the birthday wishes. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I do pray that the words of my mouth the meditation and thoughts of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Monday, there was another school shooting. This time, it was in St. Louis, not in Texas. There have been now about 70 school shootings throughout our country this year, and each time it happens, conversations begin about why it is that they happen so uniquely and frequently in the United States and what to do about them. This particular shooting in St. Louis, it was resolved quickly because both teachers and law enforcement get engaged very quickly. One teacher lost her life. 61-year-old teacher was about to retire in a couple of years. But what caught my attention especially was that the shooter who had just graduated one year before wrote in his diary the following words. He said, I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I've never had a girlfriend. I've never had a social life. I've been an isolated loner my entire life. This was the perfect storm for a mass shooting. So he wrote that. Disturbing words and tragic words. And no amount of gun control laws or open carry laws will deal with what's behind those words, and that is loneliness. The first descriptive words said about us in the scriptures are in Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image. And the second words about us are related to the first, and that is it's not good for man, for Adam, or for any of us, it's not good for us to be alone. Because an essential part of what it means to be human and to bear God's image is to be known by others and with others in deeply personal, intimate relationships, life-giving relationships with them. And without that, we die. Little by little, 
On the inside out, we die, and we die from loneliness, which seems to be heightened right now, particularly in our modern world with all the technology that we have. It seems to be making us even more lonely, especially since the pandemic. After the pandemic and all of the lockdowns, Harvard School of Education researched loneliness, and they found that 40% of Americans reported feeling serious loneliness, especially young adults. 61% of young adults reported that, and also 51% of young mothers. Many of you are both young adults and young mothers. It's not good for us to be alone, but what can solve and deal with the loneliness that we feel? That Harvard research project recommended public education campaigns and government programs and expanded health care for emotional illness, all of which are fine, but we have something better. We have the church and the church exercising biblical hospitality. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to do a, a brief sermon series on the four essential emphases that are necessary from the church for the healing of the world and for us in the modern society in which we now live. And this morning, I want us to ask, how are we to see ourselves as Christians and as the church in relationship to the world? How are we to see ourselves in relationship to the world? And the Bible answers that question through the framework of hospitality. So two points this morning. One, a fundamental image. And secondly, a hard calling. First of all, a fundamental image. Our gospel reading from Luke 14, which was just read to you, it's a famous passage, a parable, and its setting is a meal. And Jesus is the guest at this meal, and there's an unnamed Pharisee as the host. And this parable in verses 15 through following, it's Jesus's way of critiquing the Pharisee about who he invited to his party. And so imagine that. You're at a dinner party. It's a nice party, nice house. Wealthy, influential, powerful people are there, and you're sitting at the table, and the host comes to you, and in front of everyone asks, are you having a good time? And you look around at everyone, and you say, well, the food's good, but you invited all the wrong people. Imagine that. I was at a rehearsal dinner a number of years ago. Alyssa was with me. It was for a wedding that I was performing the ceremony, and I didn't really know the couple very well. And in situations like that, we typically get put back in the, the corner of the rehearsal dinner with all the less liked family members. And that was the case this time. And when the, the groom's parents came by greeting everyone, one of the ladies at the table, I think she was an aunt, she said, thanks for seating us with all the other people you don't care about. And I thought, that's why you're at the corner table right there. <laughs> that actually happened. But so much like Jesus here. Uh, this meal here is where all the action takes place, which is very, very common in the Gospel of Luke. Luke has a penchant for emphasizing ordinary settings for the most extraordinary action and work of God, which is very different from the other Gospels. In Mark, there aren't very many meals at all. There's lots of miracles and encounters with demons. And in Matthew, Jesus is the great king who's this public and extraordinary figure. And then in John, Jesus is presented as God in the flesh from the very first few verses. And then the seven miracles that the, the gospel revolves around all confirm his deity. It's, those aren't very ordinary things. But in Luke, there's an emphasis upon the ordinary. That's why he has so many meals. Because ordinary meals are one of his main settings for the extraordinary action of God. And here in Luke 14, after Jesus offends his host, there's a guy who shouts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus immediately takes that opportunity to teach them what the kingdom of God is like and therefore what God is like. Because based, up on, based on the makeup of the dinner party, he doesn't think that they know. And don't miss the implication because it's so 
ordinary that we're likely to miss it, but it's truly important and truly profound. And that is, according to this parable, God is like a host. He is like a host of a massive and amazing party or feast. He is unimaginably hospitable to the stranger, to the weak, to the needy in particular, whom he loves, and he longs to invite them in. Before we go on, just ask yourself, do I see God like that? Is that what I think of when I think of God? Because I don't think most people do. Most people don't imagine Austin, Texas with all of our city's signature events like ACL and South by Southwest and Dell Match Play and whatever else it may be. All of the various parties at the University of Texas or on 6th Street, all the bachelorette parties that happen here. We're still the number one or destination for any bachelorette party. All the weddings, all the receptions, we don't see those and think those are just poor imitations of the feast or the party that is the kingdom of God. And all of those party growers, what they're doing is they're groping and they're longing for a real feast and, and a real host who is God and his kingdom. And what they, what they touch upon, what they encounter there in those parties It's real and it's true and it's transcendent, but what they're really after, they also miss because the party that they're after is the party to end all parties. And the Bible says that it's with God. And here, verse 16, it says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. That man is God. And so think through that verse, hear that verse when you read other verses like what was read for you in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Imagine creation as an act of invitation from God to all of creation, an act of invitation into relationship with him and into his very life. Every aspect of creation, the day, the night, the waters, the dry land, the plants, the trees, the animals, the angels, and especially us as his image bearers, invitation as guest into his life and into relationship with him. If you do that, it'll make sense of what God says to Adam in the garden. You may surely eat. You, first thing said to him, you may surely eat of everything. All the trees of the, of the garden, except this one tree, you may surely eat. These are words of a host. They're basically take and eat. He says the same thing to Noah after the flood, which was an act of recreation. After the flood, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So again, take and eat. And, and as Israel is walking through the desert, what does he do for them? After, after the parting of the Red Sea, which is a flood-like experience and another act of recreation in the midst of the desert, he rains down bread, he rains down quail for them. He strikes the rock so that waters can flow in the desert. So again, it's essentially take and eat. And as they're about to go into the promised land and the Jordan River is parted, which again is an act of recreation, another flood-like experience, they get into the promised land. And how is the promised land described? As a land what? Flowing with milk and honey. Because these are the words and the gifts of a host. And why? Because that is who God is, a fundamental image for God, a yearning host, as our parable portrays with an insatiable desire to have people near to him, people like you, people like me, near to him and with him and a part of his kingdom to share his feast. So do you see God like that? And if you did, how would it change you? How could it change you? How could it change me? How could it change our church? It might change why we come to worship. You ever thought about that? Why you actually come to worship? Well, if you see God fundamentally as a judge, you'll probably come to worship simply to receive forgiveness or to assure yourself that your forgiveness is still intact after sinning in an especially disappointing way. You'll come to church. You'll come to church for yourself. 
Now, God is a judge, and a friend of mine, Greg Thompson, first pointed this out to me. God is a judge, but his judgment in this parable is against things and people that disrupt his hospitality. And if you see God fundamentally as a healer, and I think probably many of us do, because as we've been saying throughout this fall especially, we live in a therapeutic age. And if we see him primarily as a healer, we'll come to church to have our personal needs met, to have something healed, something physical healed, or something emotional healed, some emotional need met, or some relational hurt assuaged. And the Christian life and worship can be mainly about our personal spiritual transformation and growth. And we'll come to church again and to worship for ourselves. And why will we stop going to church? I've heard it so many times. That church or this church, stop doing what? Stop meeting my needs. And now, of course, the church should meet the true needs of its people. And God is a healer, but he heals people in this parable in order to prepare them to receive his hospitality. And if you see God as a host, if it gets changed, you see God as a host and, and worship as a feast, as a weekly preparation for the ultimate feast with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, the party to end all parties, then maybe just maybe you can begin to come to church and to worship for someone other than yourself. You could actually begin to come to church for him, which is a novel idea, but we lost track of it. And maybe you can begin to come not only for him, but for others who will be here, who are made in his image, who might need for you to be his image bearer to them that morning. Because that's what we all need, isn't it? That's what we all want, to live for something and for someone other than ourselves. But if God is only primarily judged to you, you'll, you'll respond to him when you have to, because you feel like you have to. Or if he's a healer, you'll do so when you, you'll seek him when you feel like you need him. But if he's a host, he can make you want him like he wants you. And he can be more than obligatory to you or more than useful to you. He can be intoxicating to you. He can become what you want more than anything else. Fundamentally who he is. And that fundamental image is also something that brings with it a hard or a challenging call. So if God is a point to this hard call of ours, if God is a yearning host and the world are or is his desired guest, then what does that make us, the church? Because there are three roles in this parable. There's the host, there's the guest, and then there's the what? There's the servant. In verse 17, in verse 21, and 22, and 23, we find this servant, and we find his role is that of one who's in between the host and the guest, who's always meeting, who's always going out, who's always communicating on behalf of the host, and who's always laboring for the host and the guest to be brought together. And friends, that is us. That, that is who we are as the church. We are agents of God's hospitable invitation and welcome to the world. And this is a hard call. It's a challenging call for at least a couple of reasons. One, because of what we read here in our New Testament reading from 1 John, which we just finished our sermon series on this throughout the fall. And here in 1 John, we read, do not love the world or the things in the world. And remember what John himself wrote in his gospel. So famously in John three sixteen, what did he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's a tension there. And I just wonder if you, if you not only hear it when I say it, but do you feel it in your life, this tension between attempting to love the world like God loves the world, but to not love the world and to not love the things of the world. And it's this tension 
It's the reason why I wanted to start this short series with hospitality, because in 1 John, the emphasis is upon remaining distinct and separate even from the fallen world so that we continue to believe differently and think differently and live differently, to, to be a unique and distinct people, not ruled by what John says here and describes as the desires of the flesh. And when I preached on this passage several months ago, I told you that the word flesh doesn't mean physical body. It just means the sinful, broken spiritual nature that we all have. So the desires of the flesh are it's anything that we inordinately desire, that we desire inordinately so much so that we crave it, which is the word that the NIV translation uses here, which is a better word, because anytime that John uses this word, it's negative. Desires can be positive, negative cravings. It's a negative sounding word. And he uses it three times here in just two verses. And as I told you a couple months ago, it means fixated urgings, epithumia in Greek. The word thumia is this Greek word that's related to the word for storm or whirlwind. So it's a, it's a wind that rages within us, and it characterizes any person who's trying to live in this world apart from God, apart from his grace and his kingdom. And John is saying that we Christians, even us, we can be swept up and swept away in other people's fallen cravings, like being swept up by a storm. And so remember Psalm 1. I always tell you this. Remember Psalm 1. Remember what it says that we're to not do. The blessed person does not what? You remember? Doesn't walk, stand, sit. You hear the progression, the downward progression there? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's what it's like to be swept up in someone else's inordinate cravings for something. And so John emphasizes being separate from the world. So you don't take on those cravings. You don't begin to think and to believe and to live differently. And you, in the, in the end, stop being a Christian altogether. So that's his emphasis. Yet the fundamental image of God is that he's as a host and we're as his servants to invite the world into his life, into his kingdom. So how do we live in that tension? How do we do that and live in the midst of that? And some of you aren't. Some of you aren't living in that tension. Some of you are on that downward Psalm 1 progression, and you're losing what's distinctive about you and about us as Christians, how, how we, we believe, what we believe, how we think, how we live. And your cravings are growing. You're, the cravings of your eyes, as John writes here in verse 16, uh, they're, they're changing and what you look at and fixate upon and focus upon, it's becoming different. Uh, the passage here says the pride in life. It's probably better translated pride in possessions because anything that you look at and stare at to become what you want to acquire, and, and it can be anything. It can be anything that you believe. If I just have that, then I'll be happy. If I just get that, then life will be okay. Then I'll be someone. Then I'll have meaning and purpose in life. It can be a person. It can be a lover or a spouse or a child. It can be a job or, or an achievement. It can be money or just a house or a second house or a lifestyle of ease and comfort and entertainment. It can be any of these things. But what's the lie about that possession? Whatever it may be. The lie is that it, well, it'll make me happy. It'll be enough. It won't be enough. And we know this. But our excuses for them to justify them. We know them and we know how they grow. They can become very similar to what we read here in Luke 14, which is another reason why this, this call to be God's servants for the world is so challenging. So look at these excuses with me for just a second here in verses 18 through 22. There's three, 
or through 20. There's three excuses. First one comes in verse 18, where it says a man has bought a field and he has to go and examine it. And then the next one is in verse 19, where he says he's bought some oxen and he has to go and do, to, to look at them. Now, most of you aren't farmers or own oxen, but I imagine that you understand that if you're going to buy anything like that, anything at all, you're probably going to go and to look at it before you buy it. These are weak excuses. They're, they're insincere excuses. They're insulting. These, these men obviously just don't want to come to the banquet and they're using whatever excuse is available to them to just stay away. And the third one in verse 20 is the same. I've married a wife. I can't come. It's a great banquet. Bring your new wife to the party. That's fine. But he doesn't want to come. It's weak and it's insulting. And also, like I mentioned just a moment ago, it's about ordinary things, ordinary parts of life. It doesn't say that he was injured on the farm or the oxen trampled him or trampled his wife and she's now lying on her death, but it's nothing like that. And this tells us so much about what the power of sin does to us. It amplifies and it elevates ordinary things, good things, so that they, they reach this exaggerated form in our mind and our heart and they become controlling things. Ordinary, everyday, mundane things. Please know they're usually the biggest obstacles to our attentiveness to God, our awareness of his presence, our willingness to seek after him or to be found by him, far more than the catastrophic. Think about it. What most often prevents you from coming to worship or from think, even thinking about God, attending to him in any way, reading his word, seeking to pray, gathering with others in small groups to read his word, to attend to his word, serve others, to be hospitable to others, to welcome others into your life and your home? What most often prevents that? Ordinary things, mundane things, or the extraordinary or the catastrophic events of your life? In my 20 or so years of pastoral ministry, my experience is it's far more often the catastrophic events of life that bring people near. And it's the ordinary and mundane things that keep them away whatever it may be, work stuff or kids stuff or romance or sex or other parties or other events or wealth stuff. Just the first two excuses are only something that a wealthy person could offer. Those two excuses are only available to a wealthy person. I bought something. I bought, I bought a new place. I've got to go here. So these are our excuses. Do not underestimate the role of the ordinary in your life and in your relationship with God, nor sin's capacity to use it to twist our hearts into not desiring or caring about God or his kingdom, because these are our excuses. And this is our, our hard or challenging call as Christians, and that is to go out into the world as the agents of God's invitation to a people who will say and do anything in order to keep from getting close to God or to his kingdom. This is the call. You ready? Go out, engage with them, love them, serve them, eat with them, be in their homes, have them in your homes, be a part of everyday, ordinary life with them, that they might taste and see through you that God is good and that Jesus is real, that even through you, they might come to faith in him and that they might be changed, but don't let them change you. That's the call. Now, how do we do that? How do we ever do that and live in that tension and answer our host and our master's call? How do we do it? The reality is, is that we can't, simply can't, not in our own strength. And, and thankfully, we're not the servant. I know I told you that we are the servant, and we are, but we also are not the servant. 
not first and foremost, but who is? Who, who does this parable especially sound like if we were to read it closely? It's meant to sound like Jesus because he's the one who went out from heaven itself to us, into our world, and, and saying to us, come, everything is ready. Everything is ready in order for you to come. And we made every excuse possible and did everything we possibly could to come from coming into the kingdom. Ultimately, we put the servant on the cross in order to keep from coming to the host. But on the cross, he not only suffered the consequences of all of our silliest excuses, but he paid their penalty and he broke the power that they have over us. The very power of sin. He defeated that and he was raised so that he might share his very life and his spirit, the very spirit of God with us, so that not only that we might come in, but also so that we might go out with his very example to invite others in also. So do we. Do we. He's done everything is ready. He's done everything necessary for us to not only come in, but to go out. So do we. Do we go out and do we invite others in, into our homes, into our friendships, into our circles, into our small groups, into our church, do we? And who is it that we invite? Is it the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind? Those who are actually that way, that the world has actually done that to them, or, or those who are, who are spiritually like that, because all people are spiritually like that, but those who are actually like that are far more likely to recognize that they need a savior and that they need a new Lord and that they need a new kind of feast with a new kind of family and come in. I need to close, but here's one of my favorite illustrations for the hospitality of God and for the church. It's a beautiful picture of the church. It's from the epilogue to Charles Frazier's Civil War novel, Cold Mountain. Have you read this? Do you know this book? It was also made into a movie. And the epilogue in both is set about 10 years after everything that's happened after the close of the Civil War. And it's short. It primarily portrays a meal under this beautiful tree. And I like the movie adaptation better because the tree is this giant oak tree, not a plum tree. And it's happening on Easter in the movie and not the final fall picnic before the cold weather comes. But in both the movie and in the novel, all the characters are there. Ruby is there, one of the main characters. She's the one whose father neglected her after her mother died. And she grew up alone and hardened and hungry and untrusting. But now she has a husband of her own and she has a family. She has children. And her father, amazingly enough, is there too, because they've reconciled through the war and after the war. And then Ada is also there. It's Nicole Kidman in the movie. And she grew up the opposite of Ruby. She grew up wealthy and privileged and sheltered. But like Ruby, her mother died. And then when her father died, the two had to partner up in order to survive through the war, which so much of the action of the novel revolves around. But it also revolves around this man named Inman. And Inman is a soldier who loves Ada. And he's trying desperately to get home from the war to her. Inman isn't at the final meal. But in the movie, there is this woman named Sally. She's there. She's not blind. She's not lame, but she's mute. She can't speak because she's endured so much watching soldiers torture and murder her family. But even she's joyful at this meal. Everyone's singing. Everyone's praying as they gather beneath this tree because they are the poor and the crippled and the lame. They're not fully, completely healed, but they found a new family. And they found a new feast that gives them life unlike anything that they've ever experienced before in this life. And there's a little girl there too, a nine-year-old little girl, because Inman made it home to Ada one day before the war caught up with him and took his life. And the film version gives their daughter a name. Do you know the name? Do you remember it? 
The name is grace. Because this is the church, and this is the hospitality of the church that we are to offer to God. The very grace of God has come to us so that we might offer it to others. So friends, if you are a Christian, the grace of God's unimaginable hospitality to you in Christ has come to you. You've been brought in. And so go out in order to compel others in. You're th- you know someone, you're thinking of someone right now, some person. So do not delay, go out to them with the very hospitality and invitation of God to them. And if you are not a Christian, welcome. You're welcome here because you are the Lord's desired guest. So come fully into the feast. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might know who we are as your people, and that we might delight in all of that which we have been given and delight in it so much and delight in you to the point where we, like you, desire to share all of that which we have with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.